0: Hello there and welcome back to peace in their time episode 84 the revolution well it took us a while but we finally hit the mother of all revolutions it's impossible to overstate the importance of the great october revolution especially for the period we're covering so i'm going to take a moment to gush in the immediate aftermath of the bolshevik takeover of russia there was a rapid dismantling of the old order which had existed for centuries What replaced it was an ad hoc experiment that would dominate the thinking of its enemies in the West for the rest of the 20th century. The establishment of a state that based itself on Marxist teachings in turn provided both an inspiration and a haven for the like-minded across the globe. The sudden surge in socialist activity we've discussed taking place all over Europe and the rest of the world can be attributed to the success of Lenin and his comrades in Russia. So too, then, were the reactionary politics that followed also a consequence of this revolution? The fear of socialism and communism spurned the counter-revolutions in Italy, Germany, and all over Central Europe. And even in the more secure bastions of liberalism like the Western Entente, the well-off elites were terrified of the great specter of socialism visiting their homes as well, and they fought to block any perceived rise in that red tide. The speed and totality of the October Revolution would be such a shock that it would induce paranoia across the globe, paranoia that would in turn lead the powerful of the world to turn a blind eye to far more dangerous political movements until it was too late. But as October 25th, 1917 dawned, it didn't look exactly like that was going to be the case at all. On that fateful day, Trotsky and the Military Revolutionary Committee, or the MRC for short, had indeed taken the streets of Petrograd but the great work was only just beginning. There were two orders of business that day for Lenin and his crew, namely detaining the ministers of the provisional government holed up in the Winter Palace and impressing upon the Congress of Soviets that it was going to be a Bolshevik government that was going to be taking over the state apparatus. The first stage has proceeded apace, with the MRC forces taking the Marinsky Palace and seizing the Provisional Council that had been established to replace the defunct Duma a month previously. The advance on the Winter Palace, though, had to be delayed until the evening as some supporting units were slow to arrive and the artillery that was expected to be on hand proved to be inoperable. If they knew what was waiting for them in the palace, they probably wouldn't have delayed. The Winter Palace itself is an enormous complex and if seriously defended could have been a pain to overrun. But it wasn't properly defended and its meager garrison consisted of frightened cadets, an untrained cadre of women volunteers, and hungry Cossacks who saw the writing on the wall, initially 3,000 in all. They all knew they were horribly outnumbered, and there had been no plans made to actually hold the palace, meaning there were no stores of food or weapons. The pantry wasn't even sufficient to feed the troops there for the day, and by early evening on the 25th, all but 300 troops had abandoned their posts, and those remaining weren't going to fight to the end, or much at all for that matter. Kerensky had ordered troops at the front to redeploy back to Petrograd, lying to them that the Soviet had signed off on that order, but isolated in the palace, he had no idea if his order was being obeyed, which led to him slipping out on the morning of the 25th to leave the city and try and link up with the hypothetical loyalist troops, which was conveniently right before the Bolsheviks would deploy the bulk of their own forces. Because the railroads were in red hands, Kerensky and his entourage had to go out looking for a car, as the provisional government was lacking even in transportation. They got one from the war ministry and also stole another one from the American embassy, and by 11 a.m., just in the nick of time, he was speeding out of Petrograd. This left the government ministers, who immediately descended into debates about who was going to be in charge and comically making up the post of dictator on the spot as the ultimate prize. The group didn't even know their way around the massive palace, which went double for the few troops willing to protect them, Communications were cut except for a single telephone line running directly to a telegraph room in the war ministry's attic. The Bolsheviks had already taken the ministry, but they didn't know about the attic, so there was one guy just sitting up there manning his telegraph machine and the phone to the palace. All through the 25th, the ministers would relay messages for him to send out to the rest of the country, each one getting more desperate and delusional than the last. When the palace finally fell, the loan officer in the ministry just put on his coat, and walked right out the door. Which was remarkably like the Beer Hall push where they took the local army headquarters, but failed to occupy the communications room. Life lesson, when launching a coup, clear every single room. The one attempt to relieve the palace came from the members of the Petrograd Duma, when about 300 representatives marched in a column totally unarmed to the Bolshevik cordon. They had brought with them food, which they intended to give the starving garrison. Which, that's just a great example of liberal Russia for you. A good intention delivered a day late to affect anything. They didn't wind up making it anywhere near the palace, as they were stopped at a checkpoint and turned around. One of them bravely walked up to a soldier and pronounced himself ready to die, but the soldiers weren't going to indulge a group so out of their depth as they were. The crowd asked the soldiers what they would do if they didn't disperse, and one soldier called out that they would give the officials a spanking. The Duma reps sullenly turned away, grumbling and debating their next course of action in saving the country, which turned out to be doing nothing. At 6:50 p.m., the ministers were advised if they didn't surrender, then they'd be fired upon by heavy guns. The ministers opted to proceed with their borscht and fish dinner instead, resolving to delay as long as possible. The Bolsheviks were still trying to get the artillery set up and so didn't immediately do anything. Finally at 9:40, The cruiser Aurora, which had sailed up to just a few blocks from the palace, fired a blank signal shot. The sheer sound of the blast pretty much broke the spirit of the remaining defenders, and what troops remained began looking for the exits. While the ground artillery was next to useless, the attackers opened up with machine guns and rifle fire, starting their advance. Up to this point, most of the city's citizenry didn't even know there was a revolution underway, as the MRC had restricted its activities to occupying government buildings, checkpoints, and the like. Only now, at the end of the day, was it apparent that something was up. The attack continued for several hours, and it was only at 2 a.m. that the ministers were rounded up. Not that that was a chore, they were found laying around on sofas in the upstairs areas, waiting to be arrested. The troops were annoyed that the big prize, Kerensky, was not among them, but for all intents and purposes, the provisional government had been detained. Meanwhile, the Congress of Soviets was finally getting underway. It had been supposed to have started in the early evening, but Lenin had continuously delayed it, wanting to have the palace and the provisional government ministers in his hands beforehand. But by 10.40 p.m., the proceedings finally got started. The Mensheviks and SRs were seated at the head of the platform as they were the outgoing leadership, and they provided a stark contrast to the Bolshevik crowd. Whereas the more moderate groups favored crisp, formal suits, the Bolsheviks coming in from the provinces presented a far more modest picture, one more in step with the masses they were drawn from. Critically, the Bolsheviks did not quite have a majority in the Congress, with 300 out of 670 seats. This is where the split in the SRs that I've mentioned becomes really, really important. The left SRs, composed of more youthful and energetic members of that organization, wanted tangible revolutionary action. They had sat through the failure of the February Revolution and weren't about to let a second opportunity go, and their issue was redistributing farmland, something that the Bolsheviks at that time had their backs on. An alliance of those ready to fight seemed natural, and they formed a coalition. Plus, they believed that their presence could help moderate the Bolsheviks, which might have been true at the start of the night, but as we're going to see, a lot can change over one night. The SRs as a whole got 193 seats, and half of those belonged to left SRs, so Lenin then had a majority to work with. The Mensheviks were a non-factor, as they had been left with 82 seats and were clearly on their way out. The incumbent Soviet leaders took their cue once the blocs presented themselves, and 14 Bolsheviks and 7 left SRs took their places. The Mensheviks were allotted 4 seats themselves, but declined them, almost as if they foresaw what was coming next. Lenin declared at the Congress that the provisional government had been successfully overthrown, which might have been a few hours early as the palace wasn't considered secure until after 2 a.m., but, yeah, whatever. Regardless, the Soviet now had to decide on a government. Martov, the old Menshevik leader, made the all-too-reasonable suggestion of appointing the new government based on the proportional strengths of each party within the Congress, something that was agreed to by the rank-and-file of all parties. Not what Lenin wanted, and he was probably fuming... But the night wasn't over just yet. This party was going to go into the early morning. Just as this course of action was agreed to, a bunch of Mensheviks and right SRs in attendance began loudly condemning the manner in which the provisional government had been overthrown. By that time, they all would have been aware that the Winter Palace was being assaulted and the moderates were not happy. Seeing that the Soviet would be under Lenin's leadership and not wanting to stick around and try Martov's strategy of proportional government responsibility, they walked out. At that critical moment, when everything was right there on the table, they abrogated both responsibility and opportunity and walked out of the room. Lenin had totally won the battle for the Congress of the Soviets. The walkout also totally swung the mood of those remaining in the chamber. Martov tried to turn the topic back to a coalition government, but the left wing of the room were not happy at the denunciation. The phrase, counter revolutionary started getting tossed around, and that's never a good sign. Trotsky took the floor and pretty much buried the moderates in one of the all-time best speeches, demanding to know how compromise was possible with those who had refused to do so by walking out. He capped the speech with, You are miserable bankrupts. Your role is played out. Go where you ought to go into the dustbin of history. Martov and the remaining Mensheviks got the hint and left, voluntarily stepping into that very dustbin. Trotsky then put forward a resolution to condemn the Mensheviks and the right SRs for undermining the Soviet by walking out on it. In this manner, the National Congress of Soviets passed into total Bolshevik control, despite them not commanding a majority at the start of the night. The Great October Socialist Revolution had started very strongly for them, But as it usually is, seizing power from a zombie government was the easy part. Now, the hard part of actually governing would get underway. The seizure of the state apparatus would be complicated by years of that very same state apparatus completely falling apart. It would also expose a critical weakness of the Bolshevik faction, namely that they didn't really have any governing experience within their ranks. They were professional revolutionaries and agitators, They excelled at living on the run and indulging in conspiracies. Acting out in the open with complete responsibility was something new to all of them. One of the first problems to arise was widespread chaos and rioting in the streets as it dawned on the populace that the old order had gone away. In an entertaining up-to-a-point example, with the Winter Palace blown wide open, the citizenry indulged themselves to the tens of thousands of very primo wine bottles contained in the cellar, the collection had been sitting there since the Tsar had been forced out, and now everybody rushed to get their hands on the good stuff. This might seem inoffensive, after all, the czar and his family were detained in a remote location indefinitely and weren't ever coming back to collect it, so no harm, no foul. But it's kind of hard to describe just how much booze was in that cellar. People crowded it day and night, but the store of bottles seemed limitless, and it became embarrassing as... Everyone within a walking distance of the palace was drunk constantly, and this went on for over a week until the Bolsheviks formed a special task force to keep people out. But then they just got drunk too, and the whole thing just kept going. The jails were filled with trespassers, and still the booze was getting out. They tried to destroy the stockpile, but there was just too much of it to actually destroy. The cellar was finally exhausted sometime around New Year's, but it was an early demonstration the Bolsheviks had their work cut out for them and some of the biggest offenders in emptying the cellar had been their own people. Much more serious, though, was what happened when the sun went down in Petrograd in those early days. The revolution was designed to elevate the common workers to an unheard-of state of dignity. But in the meantime, those common people were hungry, cold, and angry. Riots and looting became a common occurrence, and the city streets were distinctly unsafe. That being said, life in the city carried on as best it could given the circumstances. The factory still ran, and the transportation system still functioned. And as a result, the workers maintained their communal solidarity. Unfortunately for Lenin, those ties among the workers didn't lead directly back to him and the Bolsheviks. The workers still thought in terms of socialism, not one faction or party, but as a broad and maybe a little too vague sense of ideals. They appreciated the Bolsheviks' aggression and wished them well in overthrowing the hated provisional government, But now that that task was out of the way, they wanted all the groups to make nice with each other and lead in lockstep. It was a naive fantasy, and they had no idea how bad the splits had gotten, or just how critical that walkout of moderates had been late on the 25th. As it turned out, when the government was overthrown, word had spread first in the capital, then across the rest of the nation, that the Soviets, as a united team of socialist factions, had taken power. Not the Bolsheviks in particular. This had been why Lenin was so antsy to seize the Winter Palace early. He wanted word to get out that it had been a Bolshevik triumph, but that didn't happen. The confusion was, over time, certainly cleared up, but it added yet another task in the long list in front of the Bolsheviks, that they were the ones in charge. And since the revolution was perceived to be a triumph of the Soviets, the workers decided to lean on the various party bosses to try and force them to start working as a team. As early as October 29th, the Union of Railway Workers demanded the Bolsheviks form an all-Soviet government, meaning all the big factions got a place in the new government. This was overwhelmingly supported by the workers in all the big cities across the nation. This was a serious challenge to the Bolsheviks, as the railway union could paralyze the nation and literally stop them in their tracks. Plus, in the aftermath of the 25th, the first real battle of the Civil War had gotten underway in Moscow, as troops loyal to Kerensky were getting the better of the Red Guards in that city, and reinforcements had to be shipped in somehow. And then there was the prospect of loyalist troops from elsewhere catching a lift and being shipped into the capital to take the Bolsheviks down. That last scenario was actually kind of a real threat. Within days of the government's downfall, the Petrograd garrison effectively disbanded itself, and the troops deserted to either go back home or set themselves up in the city in some kind of non-soldier capacity. So, suddenly, there weren't a whole lot of troops in the capital, which is kind of crazy to think about as Petrograd had basically been an armed camp since well before the Tsar had been overthrown. Lenin and the guys had to treat this situation very delicately. On the 29th, the same day the workers had presented their demands, the Bolsheviks put Kamenev in charge of negotiating with the workers and the moderates on how to set up a coalition government. Kamenev was probably the best man for the job, being among the most moderate of the Bolsheviks and one of the few to be willing to publicly defy Lenin. Even with that credibility, the talks didn't go very well though, as the moderates figured that the mere fact that the Bolsheviks were being forced to the table meant their position was weak and they couldn't hold out. More on that later, one of the things that saved Lenin over and over again during the next six months was that everybody expected him to fail and so stood back and just let him do his thing. In this case, the moderates set their conditions to cooperate as the release of the provisional government officials that were arrested, dissolving the MRC, bringing Kerensky back to help set up a new government, and forbidding Lenin personally from joining it. Even Kamenev, as sympathetic as he might have been to the moderates, did not see the demands as realistic. And as in so many other times in this series, it turned out not to matter as events elsewhere rendered the issue moot. Kerensky had gotten out of the capital on the 25th, but hadn't really gotten too far. He had set up in the town of Gatchina, just 26 miles to the southwest of Petrograd. He set up in one of the Tsar's old palaces there and tried to get a general, any general, to send help. Most of them, though, didn't want to get involved, especially as the last time non-red-aligned troops approached the capital, they were converted to the revolutionary cause before even reaching the city. A force of 18 companies of Cossack cavalry were initially willing to march and they were directed towards the capital on the 29th. It didn't go well, as on the 30th, they met Bolshevik troopers outside Petrograd, among them members of the Latvian Rifles. A little intro to the Latvian Rifles. They were kind of an elite force in the Tsarist army that had proven to be one of the hardest divisions in the whole army. About 40,000 total soldiers passed through the unit at various points, but numbers fluctuated since they were given some of the hardest objectives and losses were high and then after the revolution, loyalties became split. But many of the Latvian riflemen came from Riga, which before the war had been a heavily industrialized city and therefore a bastion of socialism. Upon the Bolshevik seizure of power, the riflemen sided with them and would become an elite unit in the Red Army. The struggle could hardly be called a battle, and let's just say they dissuaded the Cossacks from advancing, which collapsed Kerensky's slim hope of retaking Petrograd, the would-be dictator dodged troops sympathetic to the new regime for the next few weeks and finally slipped out of the country into an exile that would last the rest of his life. In Moscow, too, the news went from bad to good for the Bolsheviks. The MRC troops had been opposed by Loyalist soldiers there with the political backing of the city Duma. This was a street battle reminiscent of my episodes on the German Revolution of 1918-19, to except this time the forces of counter-revolution weren't battle-hardened trench fighters armed to the teeth, but rather military cadets and civilian volunteers scarcely better armed than their Red Guard counterparts. The first four days did not go well for the Reds. They lost control of the Kremlin and were forced to fall back to the workers' districts of the city. By the time the inner party talks in Petrograd had gotten underway, things were looking kind of dicey. But the Reds afterwards had gotten their hands on some artillery and within two days were shelling the Kremlin and by the end of the 31st, the secondary capital was theirs. Just two days into the critical negotiations over the new government and the two most immediate military threats to the Bolsheviks had been taken care of. Now, Lenin and Trotsky were free to hijack those talks and turn the whole thing to their advantage. Trotsky condemned the compromises Kamenev had been working on during a Bolshevik Central Committee meeting on November 1st, and Lenin condemned the railway workers' leadership as counter-revolutionary, which there's that phrase again, the condemnation of Kamenev went so far that the next day on the 2nd, he and his supporters were accused of unmarxist conduct during the events of the 25th. He was presented with an ultimatum to sign that would signal his submission to Lenin and his abandonment of the moderation which had guided his actions so far. He wound up declining, and he and four others, including Zinoviev and another leading Bolshevik named Alexei Rykov, resigned from the Central Committee on the 4th. They went public again, warning of the dangers of a Lenin dictatorship. Don't worry, they'll all make up with each other and would be back in the fold before long and in high places of power even. In the meantime, though, at Lenin's direction, the Bolsheviks moved to provoke the moderates to abandon the talks. They shut down some newspapers critical of the Bolsheviks, arrested a couple SR leaders, and presented their demand of three-quarters of the minister spots as an ultimatum. It was bullying tactics, pure and simple, designed to enrage the opposition. It worked, too and talks were broken off on the 6th. Importantly, though, Lenin could claim it was the moderates who had walked out yet again. There would be no coalition government, to say the least. There were other obstacles to overcome in the capital after that, though. I've talked a lot about ministers and ministries, and it's important to note that these government departments were staffed by legions of bureaucrats and clerks. The new management wasn't keen on building a new state from the ground up, seeing as how they had no clue how to actually do that and had to awkwardly approach the departments of the government and tell the staff that, well, they were now in charge and that all the staff should just, you know, keep doing their jobs as normal. Like, nothing had ever happened. The rank and file in the government, though, didn't go for that, and many of them launched a civil servant strike in protest of the seizure of power. One early example of this protest happened to Trotsky. Uh, He had been made commissar, which, again, was the new Bolshevik term for minister of foreign affairs. He entered the offices of what was to be the commissariat of foreign affairs, introduced himself, and told them he was their new boss. They laughed at him, and everybody walked out. All across the government, civil servants would lock away records, walk off with the office furniture, sabotage what they couldn't take, and more besides. The state bank refused to work with the new government, and on November 7th, the Commissar of Finance took a squad of marines to shake the bankers down, but they still refused to cooperate. Only on the 17th of November did the Bolsheviks seize the bank and the keys to open the vaults. These strikes were eventually overcome with a few arrests and firings, and also as it became clear that nobody was coming to topple the Reds, and so many civil servants fell in line and returned to work. Those first few weeks of revolution, though, even in the capital, saw the government mostly consist of the MRC making ad hoc decisions as the situation demanded. That was simply the best they could do. It was all a sign of inexperience and a lack of a plan for when the revolution actually succeeded, which, to be fair to them, they had no idea they were going to have this much success. Long-term, though, it might have actually played to their advantage. The early incompetence didn't do much to threaten the moderates and conservatives the onlooking factions figured all they had to do was wait and the whole enterprise would collapse. And as I just mentioned, even the revolutionaries had a dim view on their chances, which meant that the cadets, Mensheviks, and right SRs all sat back and waited for Lenin to destroy himself, as opposed to taking active steps against him. The opponents of the new regime decided to stake their hopes on the constituent assembly, the elections for which would be in late November and was due to open in January 1918. The provisional government had always supposed to have been just that, provisional. The constituent assembly would be a newly elected body of representatives that would hash out the future of the Russian nation, which included creating a formal government so as to move on from the provisional one. Despite the whole Bolshevik uprising on behalf of the Soviets, that election was still scheduled, and the non-Bolsheviks viewed it as their best chance to peacefully put Lenin and his ilk in their place, which to them was out on their asses in the street. Naturally, it became imperative for Lenin and his ilk to shore up their government before that assembly could be gathered. As had happened before, the situation kind of sorted itself out. I've been focusing on events in Petrograd, and in my defense, the capital was the most critical place for the revolution to seize control over. But alone, it would have been a mere speck on the gigantic map of Russia. Fortunately, the revolutionary message was received by the scattered Soviets and taken up with gusto the provincial cities across Russia were eager to turn the Bolshevik slogan All Power to the Soviets into practice. The Soviets began taking control over the major cities and transportation networks, and returning soldiers that had been radicalized provided the muscle. Military revolutionary committees like the one Trotsky had led in Petrograd sprung up all over, with 350 localized versions being formed to organize troops to tear down the old state apparatus and let the Soviets take over. The Soviets, in turn, were typically dominated by the Bolsheviks. In many cases, this was due to electoral successes giving them majorities in those councils, and in cases where they were in the minority, they oftentimes managed to take control of leadership committees and other management spots by virtue of being the most active and aggressive. And finally, if all that failed, they'd simply use the presence of armed troops or Red Guard workers to seize the Soviet Whatever the case, in the end, the Soviets would come to answer what was termed the Sovnarkom. The Sovnarkom was the collection of commissars working under Lenin's auspices. Think of it as a traditional cabinet of ministers, with Lenin as effectively the prime minister. In the countryside, the approach was even simpler, as the Bolsheviks simply recognized the peasant land seizures from the local gentry and, for the moment, let them manage their own affairs. I'll be getting more in-depth on that next episode. All this had the effect of both tearing down the old social order so thoroughly that it couldn't be brought back and establishing a new one in its place. That meant by the time the assembly would convene, its business of reordering Russia would have already been completed and its entire existence would be superfluous. But I'll be getting to that last hurrah of Russian liberalism in two weeks' time. Next week, though, I'm going to take some time to stop and go over just what the hell was going on in the other parts of Russia that weren't Petrograd, before and immediately after the October Revolution. So join me then, and as always, thank you very much for listening.